Back to Acts chapter 8. I invite you to turn with me this Lord's Day morning and back to the text that we considered last week, or at least part of that text. It's not my usual practice, as you know, to dwell too long on a particular passage, and there's a reason for that. While I certainly admire the ministry of the likes of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who could turn a single sentence or even just a few words or even a word into an entire sermon and a sermon series on a single book into years, I choose to take instead larger chunks, paragraphs, uh, oftentimes as we make our way through books of the Bible, because I want for us to um, get the flow of the books. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. I want for us to maintain a sense of where the book is going and, and how each individual passage fits into the tapestry of that uh, particular book. But we're going to stop at this tree in the forest of the book of Acts and, uh, and take another look at it because there's something unique about it. Maybe you caught it last week. And even wonder, wonder to yourself why I wasn't even making mention of it at the time. And it was because I intended to come back to it today. Professor Howard Marshall calls this one particular verse of our text perhaps the most extraordinary statement in Acts. Let's listen for it as we read after we pray. Father in heaven, we need your spirit just as much for this as for anything we do in our worship, as much as we need him to intercede for us in prayer, seal salvation to us and to our hearts, be our guarantee of eternal life. We also need for him to open the eyes of our hearts to receive your truth. So we pray for him to be much at work right here. As we go to your word and listen to your voice, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke, I mean, Acts chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 14 and read through 17 and then skip down to 25. Acts 8, 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I'll jump to 25 with me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, the whole situation is really quite remarkable. And I've mentioned this to you in the past, the gospel going to the Samaritans. To the Samaritans. We all know this, as the church did in the early days, that Jesus had told them at his ascension into heaven that they were to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The first one, of course, they might well have anticipated. And the last part, to the end of the earth, might not have caused them much consternation. But to Samaria? Samaria? Really? 
The idea that salvation would extend to the Samaritans was not something that would sit very well in the stomachs of most first century Jews, even Jewish converts to the Christian faith. I told you why in the sermon I preached to you before our vacation several years ago, and if you, several weeks ago, and if you can't, I have not been on vacation for several years, really. Uh, I told you why in that sermon. I guess you're just going to look it up if you don't remember on the internet and uh, listen to it. Uh, But the Samaritans would likely be just as surprised on their part to find salvation should come to them through the Jews as the Jews were to find that salvation should go to the Samaritans. They lost no more love on the Jews than the Jews did on the Samaritans. Remember the conflicting views of salvation and of the Savior, the anticipated Messiah that we heard in that conversation between the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she said, pointing to Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had built a temple. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Well, now Philip, as we've seen, brings the good news to the Samaritans, and many of them believe. Crowds of them not only listened to Philip's words, but believed and were baptized. They received the word of God. They did. But then this, what the celebrated New Testament professor Howard Marshall calls, as I mentioned, perhaps the most extraordinary statement in Acts, a bombshell of sorts to us in verse 16. The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, the extraordinary part is not that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We see that formula a few times in the book of Acts. And nowhere does Luke raise the alarm that there's been any sort of violation on the apostles' part of Jesus' Great Commission formulation of baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Apparently, Luke is referring more to the fullness of Christ as expressed in that name, Jesus, than to a particular verbal formula. Now, what is so remarkable is that these Samaritans have believed and have been baptized, but have not received the Holy Spirit. In other words, they had the outward sign, but not the thing signified. How can that be? What in the world is going on here? Didn't we just relatively recently hear Peter promise, standing in Jerusalem at Pentecost, promise, I say, the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who repented and were baptized? The Samaritans believed and were baptized. How could they not have received the Holy Spirit? Well, questions like these and others combined with them, uh, with the fact that they did receive the Holy Spirit later through the ministry of Peter and John. These questions have puzzled and even divided Christians from one another. The division falls along the answers that Christians give to this crucial question. Is this intended in Scripture to be the normative or normal experience of Christians. This divided 
or twofold experience, first believing and being baptized, and then later receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is this to be the normal, the usual pattern, or is this an exception, an historical event that we should not expect to see repeated? Well, here's where the rubber meets the road. And Christians, as I say, have given opposite answers to this question. As a professor of mine taught us back in seminary, the question we have often to ask ourselves when reading the book of Acts is whether what I am reading here in the book of Acts is descriptive or prescriptive. Whether this is describing uh, past events quite simply, or prescribing present experience. Opposite answers, I say. On the one hand, some Christians believe that this text prescribes a two-stage process for becoming a Christian, a process that consists first of conversion and water baptism, and then second of the gift or baptism of the Holy Spirit. That would make, of course, this Samaritan experience the normal and expected path for Christians to be saved, to enter the church. On the other hand, there is the belief that initiation into Christ is a one-stage event, uh, comprised of repentance and faith and water baptism and spirit baptism. And according to this view, the Samaritan experience must be a sui generis, a unique event, not to be repeated. Let me introduce you, though many of you have already been exposed to them, introduce you to those folk in the Christian church who hold to the first view, those who hold to the two-stage view. There are actually two major groups in the Christian church who hold to this view, Uh, And they come from surprisingly different parts of the Christian church. From opposite ends of the ecclesiastical spectrum, is the way John Stott describes them. They are Roman Catholics and Pentecostals. Both of these, Roman Catholics and Pentecostals, go to Acts 8. Our text is a major proof text for their beliefs that Christian initiation happens in two stages, the second being the receiving of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Roman Catholics believe that the first stage is baptism, and the second one they call confirmation. In confirmation, a bishop, regarded as a successor of the apostles, imparts the Spirit. This is actually an ancient view and practice traceable all the way back to the third century. The church father Cyprian commented on the Samaritan incident this way. He wrote, exactly the same thing happens with us today. Those who have been baptized in the church are presented to the bishops of the church so that by our prayer and the imposition of our hands, they may receive the Holy Spirit. Today, Roman Catholics continue to teach and to believe and to practice this. One modern Roman Catholic scholar writes that the Samaritan episode, quote, bears all the marks of a normal procedure. 
relying on the same passage, Catholic authority Ludwig Ott systematizes the Roman Catholic position this way. A, the apostles performed a sacramental rite consisting of the imposition of hands and prayer. B, the effect of this outward rite was the communication of the Holy Ghost. C, the apostles acted in the mandate of Christ. Their matter-of-course manner presupposes its ordinance by Christ. And, and that's the end of Ott. And some Anglo-Catholics, too, and Episcopal types, also treat Acts 8 as normative for Christians today and exercise confirmation in their circles, too, with the laying on of hands for the special gift in their understanding of the Holy Spirit. On the other end of uh, Stott's ecclesiastical spectrum, Pentecostal churches also hold to this two-stage view, though it looks a little different. First comes the human work of repentance and faith, then the divine work of new birth, what we call regeneration. And then second, baptism in or by or of the Holy Spirit, often though not always associated with the laying on of hands of a Pentecostal leader. For example, if you go to the website of Good Shepherd Church here in Owensboro, and let me hasten to say I love their pastor, and I'm privileged that he loves me, and if he's willing to share a small part of heaven with me, and I'm not overstating the case, he is a godly, holy man, I will be privileged indeed. In fact, Emil Herzog, our chaplain to the jail here in town, is also of this conviction. But I say on Good Shepherd's website, they quote paragraph 7 of the Assemblies of God's Statement of Fundamental Truths, which reads thus, All believers are entitled to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit and therefore should expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all believers in the early Christian church. With the experience comes the provision of power for victorious Christian living and productive service. It also provides believers with specific spiritual gifts for more effective ministry. The baptism of Christians in the Holy Spirit is accompanied by the initial physical sign of speaking in other tongues, unlearned languages, as the Spirit of God gives them audible expression. Meyer Perlman, an Assemblies of God Bible teacher, offers this further explanation. He writes, while freely admitting that Christians have been born of the Spirit and workers anointed with the Spirit, we maintain that not all Christians have experienced the charismatic operation, i.e. baptism of the Spirit, followed by a sudden supernatural utterance. And we say, whew, there is hope for us chilly Presbyterians. <laughs> the question, of course, is whether the two-stage Samaritan experience is the norm for Christian initiation or not. And, by the way, it will not do for us to deny that the Samaritan experience was a twofold 
initiation or experience. They won't do for us to deny, for example, that the Samaritans really did believe at the first and were baptized. Sure, Simon's profession of faith proved to be bogus, as we saw last week, but Luke does not give us any indication of falseness. In fact, gives us every indication that the Samaritans genuinely believed Philip's words and were saved before Peter showed up with John and laid their hands on the people and gave them the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And we certainly would not be arrogant enough to say that the Holy Spirit could not do the same thing today. He is, after all, sovereign. And we, of course, are not. But you can see how important this question must be to us as Christians. Is it God's normal modus operandi, his normal procedure to give the Spirit as a second experience subsequent to conversion and baptism? Well, considering the whole of the apostles' teaching and their practices in Scripture, we believe that the answer is no. What happened in Acts 8 at Samaria, and similarly in Acts 11, was not the norm. It was the exception. Repent and be baptized, Peter said, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. One stroke, not two, not three, not four. One. Now, we certainly may grow more deeply in the faith. We may grow closer to the Lord. He may bring great experiences and open up truths to us and bring our lives into greater step with the Spirit, as Paul writes in Galatians, and all of that by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But hear me on this point, dear flock. You need not Worry yourself concerning your salvation because you have never spoken in tongues or never had some special and separate work of the Holy Spirit like the Samaritans did, nor should you expect it. What is more, there is no need for the imposition of hands upon you for your salvation, or even to give the Holy Spirit to you. Now, that's not to say that at one time or another, we may not lay our hands on you sometime in your life for blessing, for ordination, for comfort, or for healing. Your elders in particular have done this and continue to do this from time to time in prayer, laying on hands in prayer, but not to bestow the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't usually preach, as you know, sermons all about what the text is not saying. But because this text has been so in our opinion and understanding, abused, or at best misunderstood, 
we make this point and labor it today. Let me, let me just show you how the Samaritan experience was exceptional and not normative. What happened in Samaria was neither in line with the normal teaching of the apostles nor with the practice of the apostles. We've already mentioned Peter's words at Pentecost. According to that first sermon of his forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, these are twin gifts that blessings that God gives right off, not in stages. As the Apostle Paul uh, also agrees, uh, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he wrote to the Romans in that marvelous chapter 8, he does not belong to Christ. Who has Christ has the Spirit. Who has the Spirit has Christ. Luke was familiar with this fact. So it comes as little surprise to us to hear a note of surprise in his voice when he writes that the Samaritans had not received the Spirit but had, verse 16, only been baptized. Now that only indicates that to Luke's mind there was something very odd here. Something seriously irregular. Which is why, as one scholar puts it, why the two senior apostles hot-foot it to Jerusalem to remedy a situation that has gone seriously wrong somewhere. Of course, nothing has gone wrong, as we shall see in a moment. God has a particular and unique work to do in Samaria that day. But at any rate, it certainly was not the practice of the apostles to scurry around Palestine to perform confirmation services or to make sure that the hands of the apostles were laid on everyone who professed faith in Christ, every new convert. What then? Why this delay in Samaria? Why this irregularity, this two-stage initiation in Samaria in particular. Had Philip maybe failed somehow? The apostles don't correct him. They don't even supplement his teaching, but proclaim on their way back. So so why does this, why this delay in the Spirit's part? Well, John Stott offers that the most natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit is that this was the first occasion on which the gospel had been proclaimed not only outside Jerusalem, but inside Samaria. This is clearly clearly the importance of the occasion in Luke's unfolding story, since the Samaritans were a kind of halfway house between Jews and Gentiles. Indeed, here he quotes John Calvin, the conversion of Samaria was like the first fruits of the calling of the Gentiles. As we saw earlier, the Samaritan schism had lasted for centuries. But now the Samaritans were being evangelized and were responding to the gospel. It was a moment of significant advance, Stott points out, which was fraught with great peril. What would happen now? Would the long-standing rift 
be perpetuated between the Jews and the Samaritans? The gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews? Or would there be separate factions of Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians in the church of Jesus Christ? That was the danger of their tearing Christ apart or at least forming a new and separate church for themselves. By delaying the sending of the Spirit to the Samaritan converts, God brings the apostles down from Jerusalem to Samaria. And there they lay their hands on the Samaritans. These same men who had not very long ago, you can remember, asked their master's permission to call down fire on these Samaritans, now go to lay their hands on the Samaritans to convey to them the fire of the Holy Spirit. What clearer demonstration of solidarity between Christians who once lived holding each other at arm's length and now rush to lay hands on them. Jeffrey Lamp, in his study of the Holy Spirit, notes that at this turning point in the mission, something else was required in addition to the ordinary baptism of the converts. It had to be demonstrated to the Samaritans beyond any shadow of a doubt that they had really become members of the church in fellowship with the original pillars. An unprecedented situation demanded quite exceptional methods. Michael Green calls the delay a divine veto on schism in the infant church, a schism which could have slipped almost unnoticed into the Christian fellowship as converts from the two sides of the Samaritan curtain found Christ without finding each other. That would have been the denial of the one baptism and all it stood for. Brothers and sisters, what took place at Samaria was truly unique. It was. As the gospel made its way out of Jerusalem for the first, very first time, you could expect some one-of-a-kind things to happen, like miracles performed, indeed performed by Philip right there in Samaria. There was a specific time in redemptive history in which the normal was suspended while the good news of redemption made its way beyond the zip code of Jerusalem. Pentecost was unique like that too. And we learned that as we studied it, as was 
for that matter, the ascension of Jesus into heaven before that, as was the incarnation of Jesus before that. Sinclair Ferguson, in his masterful study of the history of the, I mean, of the Holy Spirit, part of it was the history of the Holy Spirit, shows that what I've called in this sermon title the Samaritan Pentecost, like the Judean one before it, was a unique redemptive event. Therefore, he concludes, we're no more entitled to argue for a personal Pentecost or a personal Samaria experience than to argue for a personal Jordan or a personal wilderness or Gethsemane or Golgotha experience. Dear flock, what you need is not a second experience. What you need is not to speak in tongues. What you need is not some great breaking out of the Holy Spirit upon you one day separate from his having given you new life, a heart of flesh in the place of your heart of stone, faith and repentance to believe in Christ and to follow him. What you need is not somebody to lay their hands on you and convey the Holy Spirit to you or to see little flaming tongues on your head or to speak in foreign tongues for that matter. What you need is the Holy Spirit. And you have him. He is in you. Your body is his temple, says Paul. God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to you. Amen.